I know where the magic money trees are. They're in hedge fund managers' gardens all over the Cayman Islands, you know? There needs to be a globalized response to be brave enough to go and chop those trees down and bring them back. Yeah. But at the moment, we're in a situation where we can either lament that, I, you know, I try my best to try and be as front foot as possible and just go, well, you know what, let's, let's do some things. That, like, you know, we can, we can moan about it, we can try and change it along the way. But right now, right here, right now, let, let's try and orchestrate some changes. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. In this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked, we talk to Joe Sims, a Bristolian-born and raised actor who was propelled to fame for his role in the ITV drama Broadchurch. Things weren't so easy for Joe as an aspiring young actor and he experienced snobbery, classism and mockery of his Bristolian accent. So how does he feel today and what can he do to try and make it easier for people just like him? And that famous Twitter video he did with Mayor Marvin Rees promoting his campaign. Why did he do it? Does he regret it? And did he expect to be mocked by Irving Welsh? Let's um, let's paint the picture. All this program is always recorded remotely, and we can't see each other, can we? No, I don't care that way. I'm not wearing anything. So you are naked, are you? That's just what I want to double check. <laughs> yeah, uh, only oh. from the waist down there. Okay, I'm the other way round. Oh, mate, between us, we make yeah. something quite beautiful. We could. I would say, would you say that you're the the face of Bristol, <laughs> the king of Bristol? Some people say. <laughs> not even a little bit of it but i've got so much love for this city you know i think it burns through me like a stick of rock yeah so very very happy to be uh we wheeled out and talk about all things bristol and you you came back you did a london bit didn't you for a while and then you came back a few kind of years ago i think that's happening a bit now isn't it quite a few people are feeling that you can you can live in bristol and you can still you know be big in the game Bristol's always been a place that's close to my heart, and I wanted to live within a stone's throw from the mecca of English football. Lost the road? I see, I see you down Ashton Gate more than I see myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's all lies. It's all lies. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like obviously, as you get a little bit older, you want to bring up a family, you want to be closer to your, like, you know, my parents, you get a feeling of your own mortality and all that kind of stuff. And not to be morbid, but I want to cherish every moment I get to spend with my family and my loved ones. And yeah. so, um, yeah, really wanted to come in. London's great. I had an amazing time kind of running around in my 20s and falling in and out of nightclubs and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, I've always uh, anticipated coming back to Bristol and I wish I'd have made the move sooner. And now you're just falling out of chasers. (laughs) Mate, I've definitely done my share of falling out of the chase, yeah. And diamond kebabs as well, yes. And then running the gauntlet home. You you know, we jest, but you are somebody that you wear your Bristolian identity quite kind of on your sleeve. And you've got quite a strong accent as well as I have but a lot of people listening won't know that you did train in the Bristol Old Vic and at one point it, it was a bit of an issue for you dare I say the kind of acting world is a little bit middle class and a bit plummy at times I think I think it's changing now and I think it's still got more to do yeah but I didn't I didn't train at Bristol Vic theatre school I was at like it's like a youth club type thing like uh, okay a, yeah youth group and I know full well now that they're doing amazing things and strides in that direction to to change that but obviously in the mid-90s it was a very different beast 
How was that for you then? Did you feel kind of like you were a bit different? So what happened was I was going there and I was trying to fit in best I could. I was trying to chat to everybody and then people were going outside for, for a cigarette and I wasn't like, you know, I was just smoking on my own. And and they weren't big kids, you know, like in school, like, you know, right where I, where I grew up, if you had a problem with somebody, then you kind of, you fight it out and then it would sort itself out. I don't know. It just felt like that, that was a world that I knew, but this was this kind of insidious bullying that I couldn't get my head around. People were being mean to me without actually kind of saying anything more of a kind of passive aggression yeah yeah and I was just frustrated so I got in my dad's car fiesta right and I just started crying one night right just kind of I was like I, I was like I can't, I'm doing everything I can to try and be friends with these people but they ain't having it and my dad was like how do you think I feel he's like what do you think I park around the corner they've all got their BMWs and their Mercs and stuff he went I stand in the lobby try and make friends with people they didn't want to chat to me he was like let's never go back here so we didn't. We went to HTV Drama Workshop then. Oh, so you actually walked out? You left? Yeah, Because, yeah. Of, because of that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, so that was 95, or was only 15. I went to HTV Drama Workshop and it was just, it just felt so much more inclusive. You know, there was kids from, you know, estates that I understood and recognised and stuff like that. And like, you know, and people that, like, you know, people from all different social stratas, races, religions, all that kind of stuff. It felt like a much more of a melting pot, which I know Bristol World Vic is now because I, I, I've been involved in their outreach programme and, and it's amazing. So you did uh, play there, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. The football thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm kind of interested. I think probably I would imagine there still is across the board a lack of working class actors though, isn't there? I think it's one of those things like uh, me and Oldbrook uh, talk about this a lot and it's that feeling that talent's everywhere and opportunity isn't. That's Paul Holbrook, the film director yeah, from Harcliffe. And, yeah. and he and I and another talented writer called Amy Travascus are starting our own production company to try and rectify that because I don't want to pay lip service to it. What we want to do is we want to make unapologetic, Bristolian-centric drama and comedy and we want to put Bristolian talent front and centre both in front and behind the camera and I make no apologies for having that kind of bias because I feel like there are so many people that come to our city and they utilise all the wonderful things that our city have got to offer but don't really utilise the talent and you know, like there's a thing that's on my wall. It says, be the reason that people believe in the goodness of people. I want to try and get up every day and try and elevate. You know, say, say yourself, you're a, a journalist of like fantastic credentials. You know, you put your money where your mouth is. You're starting to get the success that you richly deserve. And I'm always retweeting the stuff that you do because I'm proud of you, man. Like I'm proud of you and I think that Bristol are lucky to have you. Thank you. All I can do is try and elevate people that I think are inherently good, people that further the cause. No, I mean, you know, I want to be I want to be a positive person because I do believe in the inherent goodness of people. I do believe in that. I I see that everywhere. I see teachers that stay late and play their classes like symphonies. I see social workers, beleaguered social workers that are always coming back and doing more. I see people that work in the National Health Service that are changing bedpans and have just got their Christmas hats on and going to palliative care places like St. Peter's Hospice and watching the incredible people there. Like, I mean, it is unignorable that like there are way more good people than bad, sure. you know? And so like what I want to try and do is trying to get those people to galvanise, you know? There is a brilliant lyric from the Idols that says, let's seize the day, let's all join hands and chase the pricks away. <laughs> and that for me yeah. just kind of sums up everything I want to do. And I believe that that can be done. That's not a pipe dream. No. Let's talk a little bit about you, about your acting. You made your name really in, you know, became big in the, the, the ITV drama Broadchurch mm. and you played uh, plumber Nigel Carter. Did you feel overnight that that changed how you were seen? 
in the acting world? Did did you suddenly get more offers? Was that the game changer for you? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, no, uh, undoubtedly because like after that, then that was something I could do full time for a job. Before then, I was on the hustle, like you know, doing all kinds of different things driving vans, installing water coolers and working in offices and all that kind of stuff and then learning lines of the night time on my lunch hour and stuff and then just doing like fringe shows in London. How old were you then, Joe, when Broadchurch landed? Uh, 32. So that's, would you say that's quite late that maybe this is why you have that wanting to push the door down for others because it took a while for it to happen for you? Yeah, like I'm not you know, lucky enough to be where I am because I'm the most talented. Certainly not. I know lots more talented actors than me, but I'm definitely one of the most hardworking and, and, and unrelenting like I, I, I just want to keep knocking on doors like you know, I, I want to be it's all I've ever wanted to do you know I, yeah. I, I loved it I remember like you know having an amazing drama teacher when I was at school and I like I mean the kind of people that maybe I was knocking about with and like you know kid is on my estate or whatever they got, got involved with heroin and and crime and whatnot like there but for the grace of God go I that definitely could have been me so when you moved from being Joe Sims part-time actor that was doing jobs here and there to suddenly the biggest drama on British television then suddenly were you were you being recognized in the street if so how, how did that feel yeah I mean I, <laughs> damn my vanity but the egotist and me love that but it just seems weird to me that someone's going can I have your photo can I have your autograph you're like I'm just a I'm just a duffer from Bristol but yeah like if you want it and it makes your day then I'm only too willing to make that happen okay so so after this then after Broadchurch then you went on to play Vincent Tabak, didn't you, in the, the, the drama about the, the murder in Bristol? The Lost Honour of Christopher Jeffries. Christopher Jeffries. And, and that must have been quite interesting because obviously that was a you know set in Bristol. There, you have an obligation, I think, when you do a role like that, especially because it's so intrinsically woven into the fabric of Bristolian society and it touched us all, to make sure that that wasn't going to be done for any reasons other than ones that are just and ones that put the family and the story front and centre. Were you the only Bristolian in it? or Because or you, you must have felt a bit more of a responsibility to get it right as well, knowing how delicate the situation was. Yeah, I think so. Like I say, I, like, you know, th- th- that is an undertaking that I didn't take lightly. But you know what? I so think got, finally, you know? what we're doing is we're casting off the shackles of our own embarrassment about being Bristolian. You know, we bowed in deference for long enough like you know, to, to people from London or whatever and just going, well, oh, they probably know a little bit more about us. We bow in deference to them. Actually, our voices are just, our voices are pure, our voices are clever, they're insightful, yeah. and, and we've, we've stopped making apologies for it. And since we've stopped making apologies for it, you know, the, the rest of the world, like, you know, is turning to Bristol, looking at it and just going, yeah, these people know what they're talking about. It's kind of your MO, isn't it? I, so I think about Stephen Merchant was doing a, an advert or someone the other day. I think what happens with the accent thing is locally, as you say, there's this slight sense of shame, internalised shame, but also perhaps in terms of presenting or acting or whatever, where you use your voice, there's also a, a perception of you know people being a bit stupid or, or, or being a bit thick. And so they don't perhaps get the kind of breaks. But then when you kind of burst out the bubble a bit, it's, it's, it's considered cool and quirky. I think the important thing is, is judging on the content of what I'm saying rather than how I'm delivering it. You know, like that Bristolian yeah. accent, like, you know, it, I'm, I'm proud of that. That's, I'm an amalgam of all the people that I've met before me and they yeah. all these beautiful Bristolians have informed the person that I am today for good and ill, you know? And so just words that are tumbling out of my mouth rather than the fact that I, I like to uh, lean quite heavily into my R's. I think, I think you're right. I think there's a shift and a change now. 
uh, in generally in colloquial accents. And now kind of people can start to be a little bit more proud about it. Oh, me. I, I, do you know what? I feel a bit sorry for people that are, uh, you know, maybe born, you know, a little bit more affluent. Because for me, I've long felt that, you know, they get every opportunity afforded them. And so really, in terms of their family or anything like that, like it, they must be just like the bare minimums to go ahead and win an Oscar if you're an actor or, you know, have your own hedge fund and be a billionaire by the time you're 26 or something like that. Like anything other than that must be abject failure. I've got no idea. But for, for us, the working class people, anything that we achieve is celebrated and heralded. And I'm really grateful for that. So what I want to do then is inspire other kids. Like I don't understand this mentality and I, I get it with friends and I'm sure you've got friends as well that have done all right for themselves and they seem to be intent on kicking the last rung of the ladder away. Going, oh, I'm right. I built myself up for nothing. So what they want to do is kind of vote for people that are going to protect what they've got and not send the ladder back down for the next generation of people to be able to elevate themselves. Somebody once said to me that not about fighting over the cake, it's making the cake bigger. And I think it's because a lot of people with that mentor, they're like, oh, shit, I do not want to go back there. And it's like, I've managed to get out. There ain't enough of this to go round. It's a survival. survival. And I think that's because we don't have enough, you know, broadness of opportunities that some people that do kind of get up, you know, and I'm not making excuses for them. But there is, I think there's that psychology where they're like, right, I ain't going back. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Unless there is such a distance so you can then comfortably come back in. It's an, it's, an, it's an interesting one. Let's talk about politics, Joe, because I know you're quite a, a political beast. You obviously come from, you know, Kingswood, which is quite a kind of, I was sort of quite a sort of Tory working class kind of area. How, how do you think, you're a Labour voter, how do you think Labour can start to win back some of those communities? I mean, to, to be honest, when you say I'm a political beast, all, all I want to do is try and fight, you know, social inequity wherever I see it. I want to try and make the world a better place. And I like, you know, the, the, the truth is I wouldn't know personally where to start. I, all I know is that like, I like that quote that when you're not doing so well, vote for a better life for yourself. And if you're doing quite nicely, vote for a better life for others. Is that neoliberal though, Joe? kind of like the social mobility model one of the problems is as you just rightly said if only certain people come out of that and everyone's left behind what happens then what what do you mean if everyone, i don't understand well kind of that whole thing around anyone can make it you know all this kind of stuff is obviously not everybody does there's kind of two schools of thought i think on the the left or the center left one is that social mobility thing which is around people leaving where they come from and making it and then coming back to kind of change. And I guess the other side is trying to create systems and policies that lift everybody up. So mm. it becomes more of kind of redistributive kind of model rather than a kind of social mobility model. Because I think that's always the fear, isn't it? That people, what you just said about the, the drawbridge, that does happen. Well, for me, the, the very obvious thing this, that it seems to be happening is they're trying to bank like the NHS so they can hand it over to private equity. And when that happens and we all have to pay for it, then we have to go cap in hand to big business to be able to give us like, you know, like the American model. And so that means that any kind of aspirations you've got as a working class person to be able to get yourself out of the, the kind of professional situation you might find yourself in yeah. is doubly hard. Because you're like, if you want your, like, you know, your families to die on a mattress, then you've got to go and work for some big corporation and you can be treated as badly as they want to treat you because they know that they hold all the power. Also, we've got ourselves like very much a kind of two tier education system whereby like, you know, some, some of the less affluent people in our city and our country are not getting access to the same education 
to be able to like you know to be able to know that they're getting didn't do you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and it's interesting you say that about education. Obviously, it's the Labour Party conference as we speak in Brighton, and Keir Starmer has picked up from what, what was kind of Corbyn's policy actually, which is around charging VAT to private schools, or you know they have charity tax breaks to try and kind of level that playing field a bit. I feel like I feel like that's trying to like you know change the wallpaper on a Titanic. It just doesn't make any sense to me. It's just like these little they've gone. Oh, what about trying this? What about trying that? I do feel like radical reform is is necessary and. What I would love to see is everybody just like you know reading manifestos blind. So you don't know what political party is yeah. is advocating what, and you decide not on the people, but on the like you know on the manifesto itself what you think is the best future. And I would say that we would see a very very different very different electoral result that was based on that. Because I have to say, in the last election, I thought that. I thought the Labour manifesto was was so so strong and al- almost prophetic in terms of the things that they they prophesized and is now like you know here we are in 2021 have, have come to light. Did they sell it well enough though? Did they market it as well as Cummings? Did they did they sell it well enough, or like you know, is mainstream media like got some some kind of bias? Is there like I mean, is there way more money spent on algorithms on Facebook and Twitter or whatever in order to bastardize or vilify certain people in favor of other people? You know, I, I, I don't know, mate. I don't know. Like you know, the dark arts of like you know these algorithms in terms of social media mean that there are people that I went to school with that are like, you know, just kind of foaming at the mouth, angry at people. And I feel like we've trained our guns or they, or, or these algorithms have got people training their guns at the wrong people. You know, kind of that joke where a banker, a Daily Mail reader, a Tory MP and a Polish cleaner are sitting at a table sharing 12 biscuits. And then uh, the banker grabs 11 of them and scoffs the lot. And the Tory turns around to the Daily Mail reader and goes, watch out for that Polish cleaner. He wants your biscuit. Is that the sleight of hand move then you think that where the Tories have been very clever um, or, or, or underhand is that whole kind of divide and conquer bit and to get people to blame their neighbour as opposed to the real kind of systems of inequality in this country? I think that when you're driven solely by money, it's much easier to kind of fudge the rest. You're like, don't worry, don't worry about that, don't worry about that. They just get to a position of power, you know, and then start letting their mates feed from the trough. Whereas the left, historically, always want to make sure that everybody's all right and everyone's needs are met. So as a result, because we're all trying to make sure that everybody's well taken care of and no one's being taken advantage of, we're just tearing ourselves apart. I mean, at the moment, there's two kind of wings of Labour. It's been kicking off all day yesterday over comments around circuses and trans. It's been kicking off around the reversal of some of the nationalisation of post office and, and energy companies and stuff like that. Um do you, so does it feel a bit like Labour have got the baby out of the bathwater a bit? They've gone from perhaps a sort of a pure ideologue like Corbyn, where, as you say, the policies are, you know, are really radical, but perhaps not palatable and not realistic for some people to vote for him. And some of the shiny promotional stuff wasn't great. And they've kind of gone the other way now where you've got this bloke that's very slick, you know, ex or QC, you know, lovely hair, smart suits. And people are feeling like we don't know what he stands for. But the thing is, like, I mean, it's difficult to know what the truth is because the truth lies in millions of different things, isn't there? Like, you know, because I watched Prime Minister's questions and, and Keir Starmer skewers that man week after week. Like, you know, he's a QC, so he's very, he's very, like, adroit in terms of, like, you know, getting get his point across. But no one I know or no one I went to school with is watching PM. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're a painter and decorator. You might read a newspaper, whatever that newspaper is going to be, of a dinner hour, and you'll probably, like me, you read it from the back to the front because you want to read about the sport first. Um, and, and, and so you might not get round to it. So what you've got... And that's or... kind of my point. That's kind of my point, Joe, really, is that where perhaps you've got, you know, one end of the scale... You have one, you know, he's fantastic in that situation, you know, being a legal man and stuff, but it's not cutting through all the polls. You know, everyone was like, as soon as you get rid of Corbyn, the uh, Labour's popularity in the polls will rise. And it, and it hasn't. In, in fact, it's dipped in places. Therefore, questions are now being asked about him. And I'm, it does make me wonder if it is only about, you know, getting elected, then you may as well just copy what the Tories have done is find somebody that has name recognition is already well known it's a sort of the Steve Bannon textbook isn't it find somebody that's already famous has name recognition will be willing to just say what you tell him to say and repeat phrases and just keep it really simple and then you'll win don't don't overcomplicate it and save all that stuff when you get in power because it just puts people off yeah, but I think they're kingmakers, aren't they? Like within the tabloid media still, like, you know, that's why Succession's so damn good. And if you haven't watched that TV programme, give it a watch. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like, you know, the insidious messaging of mainstream media or like tabloid media, where they're like, oh, look, here's a picture of like, you know, Kim Kardashian you know, out for a jog or whatever. And then somewhere on the right, it's got their kind of hateful, insidious messaging. This just permeating the, the like, you know, the That's mind. the reality, isn't it? That's the, that's the reality. And that works, Magsy. If that yeah. works then why are the left not doing it why are we not emulating well, that, well that, that's what that i'm saying success. that's what i'm kind of saying and people do give tony blair a hard time and for many ways rightfully so but he recognized very quickly he needed to get murdoch on side and, and played the game a little bit and, yeah. and, and you know obviously got elected three times but I, but I suppose the counter to that is people say well you know if it's just about being elected and you don't actually care about you know the issues that we talk about in conference this week that people on the left are annoyed by starmer with then then what's the point um what, what? What I'm, what I'm interested in about that, like you know, going back to Tony Blair, is that why the people who voted for the Conservative Party are not holding the Conservative Party to account. Because for me, to like we went and invaded Iraq, and so I voted for Tony Blair, didn't yeah. believe in what he was doing, and so marched against it. Like you know, I don't understand why the people who voted, for, they should be the angriest people. I think it's early days, and where Boris was quite clever, and Cummings was, they managed to create a bit of daylight between him and the old regime you know we're the anti-austerity Tories and I think that you know you also have to realize and as you said about the algorithm that people aren't consuming the same media as you and seeing the same message and they haven't got the same friends on Twitter and Facebook they've got people that validate their position so I think when we say can they not see it they're probably like well hang on a minute you know they're invested in the north you know the uh the, the vaccine rollout was far better than e- it's good good job we left the EU do you know what I mean they're, and they want to see and believe that but I do feel it is early days, and uh, and I think that, like it did with Blair, really, to be honest, that it takes a bit of time for some things to fall away, and they're not going to listen to you, Joe. They're not going to listen to people on the left going, you're wrong, you're wrong. What they will listen to is their own experience when it goes tits up. Just jump in and do the advertising. We are still looking for members for this campaign to try and get more people subscribed and members of the Bristol Cable so do please jump onto the website and find out about it and you can chuck some money in every month and support everything we do from podcasts to documentaries to online articles and of course the monthly newspaper get involved back to the chat it would be remiss for me not to mention the uh, the campaign video that you did on Marvin 
which went kind of viral. I think it was Keir Starmer himself, didn't he? Shared it on Twitter and it was based on train spotting. Choose live, choose this, yeah. choose that. So it was done in that kind of style. And then Irvin Welsh quote tweeted it saying, get to fuck. And then it became a bit of a ridicule kind of thing. At the same time, more people saw it. So my question to you is, was it a good idea for you to do it? And was it successful? Well, I mean, it was successful because Marvin got re-elected. So in that regard, it was. Um, uh, Irvin, I think, probably saw a big, bold skinhead and thought that maybe I was advocating for something without actually watching it. And then subsequent to that, like, was like, you know, apologised and said, like, fair play and stuff. And we had a bit of banter on Twitter. So that was all good. Yeah. But I'm a huge fan of Irvin Welsh. And so for sure. him tweeting me at all. I don't think he was having a go at you. I think he was having, like, because it's because it was Starmer quote tweeted as much as anything, perhaps. I don't know. I, I mean, whatever. Do you know what? I, I've stopped being embarrassed or apologetic for the things that I'm doing. And I won't always say that I'm going to make the right the right choices or whatever. In that, in that case, I felt like I, I, I did. I wanted Marvin to be re-elected because he's a friend of mine and he's somebody that I trust to drive the city forward. You know, I know how hard he works and I know how many knocks he takes and all that kind of thing. And I'm sure he's as fallible as the rest of us and the first to admit it. But, um, you know. Were you surprised though, being a Labour man yeah. and you were doing a promotional film for a Labour mayor, were you surprised at some of the kickback that you did get, particularly from people of the left? I think everyone's entitled to their opinion, man. Like, you know, those are people that, you know, whose stars burn really bright and they want to orchestrate some kind of revolutionary change and try and make the world a better place. I just, I just hope that there's a way that we can all galvanize together and to try and present some kind of legitimate blueprint for a better and brighter future. Like, you know, but like, you know, without that passion, nothing will happen. So, you know, if you, like, hold me to account. I'll hold you to account. Like, you know, but let's try and forge ahead. Let's try and think yeah. that there's probably more that unites us than divides us. And we need to get there quick because the yeah. enemy is not at the gate. The enemy is in the gate and it's got his face down in a trough and is driving this country into the, to the floor while we're kind of selling the family silver. So we need to unite and, and, and do something about that. I think it was perhaps some of them saw the mayor as being a a bit centrist and a bit centre-right and you making this kind of promotional film for him is in kind of cahoots. And I took the piss a little bit joining in, but we have that type of relationship where I can do that with you. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, you're going to get bombs for this from a certain section on Twitter. Yeah, I think if you put your head above the parapet, you put yourself up to get shot at. Like, that's that's fine. That's absolutely fine. And like, you know, sometimes I think it's a bit unnecessary if people are mean, like when yeah. people call you like a bold minger. <laughs> you know what, I've got nothing yeah, to do yeah, with yeah. politics, I can't help the fact. I know you and I know you would have seen that as right. This is about going for the Tories and this is about representing Labour, you know, the party of the working class, all that kind of stuff. I don't think you would have really, if I'm honest, been over some of the minutiae of the sort of internal mechanisms of Bristol politics so much. When you then started to get a stick for it I was I was in a bit of a weird position because I was I felt like sticking up for you but I could as a journalist I got to sort of be a bit balanced about it and I knew that you would have done that in good faith but I suppose there is another kind of side to that that where as as an actor are you now having to be a bit careful what if there is a I don't know if there was a director that had you in mind and was like maybe voted Tory or Lib Dem and then you're now too associated with a political party, can that have an effect upon you, do you think? Do you know what the liberating thing is about being like a middle-aged bloke now? Is I don't care. Like, I, I have an obligation to my family, really, and, and the world to make it what I consider to be a bit nicer. Yeah. And that is going to inform my every choice and decision from here on out. 
And, you know, I won't always get it right. And people have every right to hold me to account that they think I'm going about it wrongly. But yeah. like, like, like the majority of people listening, I want to make the world a better place than, than I found it. So you have no regrets whatsoever. It was the right thing to do. Would you do it again? Magzi, my philosophy comes directly from the DJ Pipe Piper, and yeah. it's do you really like it, and is it is it wicked? And <laughs> make your decisions based on that from here on out. Was it wicked though? Do you think <laughs> uh, the yeah. content of the video was a little bit cheesy? Come on, I, I, do you know what? I liked it. I, I like you know we we got across the messages that we wanted to get across. This is the way that Marvin wants to forge ahead for the next tenure if he was to get in again. And we did that in a way that people, like, you know, like everybody knows the film. And so it landed. Am I scared that people thought it was cheesy? Not if it, like, you know, got it. The intention was to get Marvin re-elected. How instrumental do you think it was in getting him elected? Oh, God, I've got no idea. Probably not at all. I mean, like, like people vote for Marvin because they like Marvin and they believe in what he does. Like, you know, he is, yeah. he is a man who I think has got the courage of his convictions. And on a personal level, I like him a lot. So um, he's the man that you all vote for. I'm just like, you know, some big bold divvy that made a video. Yeah. I mean, the irony of ironies is, and I, if you look at the real smart, young social media gurus at some of these big companies, right, they know that any engagement is good engagement if it, the brand is there. Even though there was a bit of Mickey taking, even though the Irvin Welsh thing, which I know he sort of backtracked from a little bit, and some people were a bit kind of coy about it, because of that, more people saw that. And because of that, more people would engage with the message. So ironically, I think, dare I say, some of the more smarter strategic people behind Marvin probably didn't mind any of that because eyes and ears were on it. Do you know what I mean? And I don't mind being a, a, a figure of fun. If people want to laugh at me or whatever, and that's okay. Like, you know, these are big shoulders, man. Like, I feel very lucky to get to do what I do and people can either choose to listen to me and hear what I've got to say or what's interesting for me is you know you're a big bristol city fan you go down city i know people that go down city with you you're very well liked people know you in that kind of sphere you know traditional working class bristolians that never probably really sniped on all that kind of stuff and it hasn't really had any negative impact on how you're seen you're still seen as the king of bristol aren't you i don't think i'll be seen as the king of bristol but I, i i like to think of myself as an open and honest book you know, I'd like to speak to anybody about anything. Like, you know, when you talk yeah. about like everything that happened during lockdown and stuff like that, like, you know, say I was helping out Bristol City and stuff and we were all yeah. making sandwiches for some of the most vulnerable families. Yeah, in- you're out and about, weren't you, with this community trust, yeah. But, yeah. but equally, Bristol Rovers, like, you know, and Adam Tutton, they were doing amazing things over there. And and so, you know, I'm a City fan, you're a gashead, like, but it transcends all that, doesn't it? Because I feel that part of, if I've got some kind of platform, is yeah. to elevate all those brilliant people. And, and because, like, you know, a lot of that work goes, like, you know, goes unseen. Do you see that a little bit as your, as your kind of role in your position kind of raise their profile? Yeah, touch, absolutely. Yeah? Absolutely, I see that. Sorry to touch on this thing that I do, but, like, for four years, I've been running this idea that I had called 500 Reasons, right? For those people that don't know, I got 499 of my mates to put a pound in each week, a standing order of one pound, and only we 500 can decide where that 500 pound goes right so you send yeah. a, a nomination in like you know unfortunately this week it was a, a lad from Brumill who got stung by a wasp and uh, unfortunately he lost his life because of like you know anaphylactic shock or whatever so he's, he's left a young daughter and his wife and like you know they're trying to pick up the pieces of their life thereafter but like it, it cuts through the nonsense like you know all the red tape and the bureaucracy we can just cut a check for that person go there's 500 quid 
We take no money. 500 quid goes in, 500 pound goes out. And that for me, like, is, is what I'm talking about in terms of like the future, because all my mates from back home that are members of that group, we've got, you've got Tories, you've got, uh, laborers, we've got, we've got Greens, we've got liberals, we've got, uh, like, you know, we'll have, uh, we'll have Muslims, uh, um, and Christians and, and people of the Jewish persuasion, you know, like, you know, it, it, it's, it's all of those people. And actually, we're all just coming together to chuck a quid in that to try and make the world a better place. So I've got something that I'm, like, I'm trying to do at the moment, which is to supersize that just for the city of Bristol. And hopefully there'll be some details about that soon uh, hopefully show the city of bristol that there's more that unites us than divides us and you know if, if we can work together we can move mountains but should we have to do so much charity stuff should should we not be able to you know get richer people to pay more taxes this is not stuff that we should be um you know public services should be delivering um i, I mean yeah I, I suppose so uh like is it is it a comedian Henning Venn? The German. And he said yeah. something like, "We don't do charity in Germany. We pay taxes." Exactly. Yeah. I I agree with that broadly. When when they talk about magic money trees, well, I know where the magic money trees are. They're in like hedge fund managers' gardens all over the Cayman Islands. You know, there needs to be a globalised response to be brave enough to go and chop those trees down and bring them back. Yeah. Uh, but but at the moment we're in a situation where we can either lament that. Like you know, I try my best to just be as front foot as possible and just go. Well, you know what? Let's let's do some things that, like you know, we can we can moan about it. We can try and change it along the way. But right now, right here, right now, let, let let's try and orchestrate some changes. So, yeah, there's that whole thing. I think Marvin said that around. You know, don't don't ruin good with perfect. It's very easy, I think, if you're in a relatively comfortable situation to sort of sit and wait for the revolution. Mm. When you've got nothing and, you, you know, you've got bread on the table and, you know, you need a helping hand, as you just said about lockdown, people were really, really struggling. You know, you can't wait for that. You need to do something. And if the government isn't doing it, or dare I say, even if the council isn't doing it sometimes, charities can fill that. It's not ideal, but can fill that space at that time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like at the end of the day, you know, moaning about it is not going to put food in people's bellies. It's not. You've got to go out and go and butter the bread and make the sandwiches. And so, like, you know, there's a place for, like, you know, trying to orchestrate this change as well. But there's an argument to be made for people who just need to go down there, get a loaf of bread out and start feeding people. Yeah. And you can combine both as well. So a really good example, I would say, Joe, really, really good example is Holiday Hunger. So I was involved in Holiday Hunger projects probably about when Street Games kind of pioneered it really about six, seven years ago. Right. And it kind of got, you know, they got some funding from Sport England, a little bit of lottery money, but it never, it took Marcus Rashford and it took some charities to actually start to force the hand of government to start to at least even listen and react to it. So it can be a twin strategy. Mm. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, what an amazing person Marcus Rashford is. The thing that frustrates me is how short-sighted we are. We herald these things for the amazing things that they are, and then we quickly forget. We were applauding the wonderful work of the National Health Service, and it feels like so many people quickly forget as we kind of get back into our life again. Yeah. I was hoping that there was going to be some real systematic change after lockdown in terms of the way that we reevaluate the, the, the way that we live and the people mm-hmm. that deserve our unconditional love and respect. Yeah. Yeah, we're talking now about £15 minimum wage, and I just don't really see why anybody... But is, is that, that. that going to happen? Okay, I'm going to just change up. We're coming to the end, really. I've got some snappy questions for you. <laughs> really, yeah. Favourite ever Bristol City player? Uh, Sean Taylor. Sean Taylor. Best actor you've ever worked with? Mm. 
going to get in trouble. L- uh, Livia Coleman. Favourite actor who most influenced you growing up? Mm, Matt Damon. Really? Ah, yeah. Okay, I see that. I had a good ball hunting bit, yeah. Biggest influence on your career? Uh, Mum and dad. Okay. Just because, like, coming from a working class family, it's so easy to turn around and just go, you should be an electrician or you've got to get yourself a trade. But they always believed in me and they always encouraged me and drove me everywhere where I wanted to go. And, like, you know, that's that's a lot. Working a job that you hate for, like, 12 hours a day and then coming home and then driving your kid halfway across town and just sitting in a car with a paper till your yeah. kid comes out of drama club or whatever, like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be forever in there. Sorry, these are quick fire questions, mine. <laughs> Sorry. You could be in any film. What would it be? Good Bill Hunting. Uh, when did you go bold? 19. Age 19? Yeah. Really? And did that affect your attractiveness to women or did it have the opposite? Because it kind of go both ways, couldn't it? I, I was living in London at 19 with no air and a Bristolian accent. I couldn't put a tough out of dead horse's head. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that for one minute. Anyway, thank you, Joe. It's been a, a pleasure as always. What we haven't spoken about, and I want to give it, a, I want to give it a big, big up. And I know it hadn't happened yet, but this, I think is a really, really good story about the Bristol Zoo car park attendant, mm. which is something that you've been working on. You've written is in the ether a little bit. Yeah, Paul Holbrook, the director from Artcliffe, uh, Amy Travascus, the writer from Bristol, and myself are uh, starting a production company called Bristol AF. And I think you all know what the AF stands for. Top of our slate is something called Ordinary Joe, which is the amazing story about the Bristolian car park attendant at Bristol Zoo that plays the zoo and the council off against each other and deals away with millions and millions of pounds. We've written it and it is really, really funny and we just can't wait to share it with you. It's in development in a moment with Fudge Park who did the in-betweeners and yeah, like if it all goes ahead, uh, then we're going to fill it with Bristolians off-screen and on-screen. We definitely want to hear from anybody that, as far as the work in television production and of course actors as well because it is going to be unapologetically Bristolian-centric. Top stuff. Thank you, Joe. Take care and I'll see you at Rover sometime. Love it, Magsy. Keep on keeping on, pal. Nice one, mate. Cheers. Many thanks to Joe Sims for joining us this week on Bristol Unpacked. And next week, we will be back with another brilliant guest and a fantastic topic. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Mags. And a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. And if you do want to become a member of The Cable and join 2,600 Bristolian members all across the city chipping in every month, then please go to the website to find out more.